Okay. Uh, thanks for holding on. Thanks for hanging out. Something's going on with my camera today. It was working right up until I hit go, and now it doesn't want to do it. So I'm going to be a disembodied voice for this episode. Hopefully you guys can hear me. Says you guys can hear me. Um, so we're just going to do it this way. So uh, thanks for understanding. Sorry for being late, but we're going to go ahead and get started today. Um, welcome to the Skywatcher What's Up webcast. My name is Kevin Lagore. I'm the product specialist for Skywatcher here in North America. And uh, we do the What's Up webcast every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. And uh, if you like what you see here, uh, please go ahead and subscribe. It lets us know we're doing a good job. Um, you can go ahead and uh, hit the subscribe button. Leave a like to the uh, any of the videos, quite honestly. If you ever want to go back and watch any of the videos, uh, they are all saved here. These are generally live at the time of their uh, streaming, uh, but we do save them afterwards, so you can always go back and uh, check them out at any time you like. They're all saved, uh, but yeah, leave a like on a video. We appreciate it. Let's us do know we're doing a good job, and uh, that you know we really uh, we're doing a good job. Sorry, got a little got a little thrown off this morning. Everything was working fine, and then it wasn't. Anyway, so today we're doing a really kind of a unique episode, and uh, I'm sure you've probably seen it uh, from our little uh, thumbnail, if you will, for this episode. We're talking amateur astronomy and research and science that you can do uh, with your telescope and, you know, home equipment. So uh, this has been a pretty interesting topic uh, researching for this episode um, and I can see why a lot of people get very interested in it. So it's uh, should be a pretty fun, interesting episode. Uh, but yeah, uh, glad to have you here. Thanks for hanging out with us. So like I said before, today we are going to be talking about science. Yes, science. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that get into astrophotography and using their telescopes and all kinds of cool stuff. And we start by taking pretty pictures and just exploring the night sky through our telescope, either with an eyepiece or eventually maybe with a camera. And there's a lot of people that I do find that want to do something a little bit more, uh, for lack of a better term, meaningful with their telescope. It's not that astrophotography isn't meaningful. It's not that um, the images that we take don't have a, a meaning or something special to us, but some people want to have... Um, they just want to get more out of what they do with their telescope, maybe provide something with their equipment and be a part of something bigger other than maybe taking a picture of a nebula or a galaxy for the 15,000th time. Uh, but it's all personal preference, and everyone has their different uh, reasonings for getting into this type of observing. So digging into that, let's go a little bit further and get beyond uh, the pretty pictures. So like I said before, you know, myself included, we all like taking, you know, those awesome detailed images in the, of the nighttime sky and sharing them online and on our websites. Maybe you sell prints, whatever it is. Um, we all get joy out of uh, sharing uh, the night sky with us uh, or night sky with anybody that we can. So, uh, but sometimes we want to go even further than just that. So we... We want to be able to be a part of maybe something bigger. 
we want to be able to see what maybe the universe is telling us um and uh yeah we want to just fundamentally be um a part of it um and see how that's going so um pushing beyond just taking a basic picture is takes a bit of work because it's we're getting into a different boundary uh here so um what we're basically talking about today is using your telescope for science applications um this is either for your own exploration capabilities maybe you want to support a current project that exists or you're embarking on your own project there are people out there from the amateur levels very advanced amateurs that are doing their own surveys you know maybe they're doing um one of them that comes to mind is a uh, all sky survey in hydrogen alpha um i forgot the name of the survey um sean walker from sky and telescope um is the um one of the big partakers in that project but you can go on and check it out and uh, see that uh, but it's a fantastic project where they're basically observing the entire uh night sky and um in hydrogen alpha it's very very impressive and they've actually discovered things through that and the reason being that that's kind of important is um a lot of people a lot of amateurs have something that a lot of professionals don't um, and that's something that I want to bring up right now. Amateurs bring a lot to the table. Now, the, what they bring to the table is this. So you have your own equipment. Most professional astronomers or professional projects rely on a consortium um, of you know various organizations that have access to these large telescopes. But they share time on those observatories and that equipment. And that's something that uh, is very limited and can be expensive. And if you want your own own telescope that you don't have to share, that's extremely expensive, especially when we're talking about the type of science that many organizations want to do, be a you know spectra or observing very faint objects. We're talking multimeter telescopes that cost millions of dollars. So it can be difficult for an organization to either have a telescope like that or gain access to a piece of equipment with a meaningful amount of time to finish their project so as amateurs the nice thing about it is we have our own equipment and we have the luxury of where time is nearly unlimited uh, with our equipment we can basically do whatever the heck we want with it it's our stuff and we also have our own budget and you know budget obviously you know some people's budget is bigger than others but um the nice thing is we don't have a lot of red tape to jump through or go through when we're wanting to do something with our telescope you know if you have the money and you want to go out and you want to get whatever it is you can pretty much go do it where large organizations there's a lot of hurdles that you have to jump through um, you probably have to raise the funds to do it uh, there's just all this big complicated politics of trying to raise money for, you know, a telescope or equipment or whatever you're trying to do to achieve your project. And then a lot of times it's so expensive that that has to be shared. And then you reduce the amount of time that you actually have access to that equipment. So as amateurs, those are three big advantages that we bring to the table um, is having your own equipment, unlimited time and your own money to basically do um 
whatever you want with it. So that's kind of awesome. Um, and that's a, that is a very big deal when compared to what professionals have to go through, um, when trying to get observations done, they have a very limited amount of time, um, when they have access to those telescopes. So what can you do? Um, there's actually a wide variety of things that you can do with your own, uh, telescope equipment. Uh, a lot of us probably have better equipment for these projects than most of us think we do. Um, and that's kind of a cool thing, having done a little bit of research on this. There's a lot of stuff that you can do. It might not be cutting-edge science, but it's still science that would be awesome for a school or an outreach program or just something that's interesting to you. Um, but you can do science with your equipment, and it really doesn't take much to do it. You might need a few little specialized things that might not cost, you know, a few hundred dollars for some of the basic stuff that we're going to talk about today, but you can go way down the rabbit hole as you can with anything astrophotography. So, um, like I said, various science projects can be done with amateur based equipment. And I think you'd be surprised how much can actually be done with it. Some, there are some avenues where you can even make discoveries, um, with very basic equipment. So I'm going to break this down and just do a couple pieces. Um, that we're going to cover today. Obviously I can't get to everything. And a lot of this is, uh, you can get into the weeds really quickly with a lot of this because it can get pretty advanced on how far you want to go into it. So the first one is photometry and photometry is basically the measuring of light and color of an object. Um, this is kind of a big thing that's, that's is done with surveys and stuff like that. Um, but photometry is a big one that amateurs can do. Uh, spectroscopy, studying the spectrum of an object that can tell us what something's made of, how fast it's moving, um, and a lot of other details there. Uh, spectroscopy is probably one of the leading sciences, um, done in the field of astronomy and astrophysics. Um, it tells us a lot about everything. Um, of course we do have supernova and nova search, um, where you're basically just scanning, looking for that. You could also throw comets under there, but I'll get into that a little bit later. I don't want to get into the nitty gritty right now. Cause I've actually taken the time to break this apart. And then we have citizen science, um, which we'll touch at the end there. So, um, let's just jump into the first one. So the first one is photometry. Um, and photometry is basically observing the intensity of light and color of an astronomical object. And this can be one thing that you should be aware of on many of these uh, scientific based uh, type of observing is it's a, it's a large commitment because a lot of this um, is going to take a, a pretty serious amount of time to invest into if you're going to take this seriously. Now that's pretty much true with everything uh, that you're doing, but because we're actually making true astronomical observations, we need as many of them as possible. Um, so that is something that you need to be aware of. You can obviously dabble in a lot of this stuff, but if you want to really get into this, it's going to, it's probably going to overwhelm, uh, what you do for uh, your pretty picture work. And it might even require you to adapt your equipment to be more in line with this type of work. Um, so most uh, photo, photometric or photometry is done 
on every clear night. You're trying to take as many data points of a particular object to build um, what's called a light curve, which we're going to get here. I'll talk to you guys about that um, here shortly. But you're trying to take as many measurements of this particular object as possible. So that's basically just a bunch of pictures over and over and over and over again um, on as many clear nights as possible. And the more data points you have, the more of the curve that you actually see. Um, so, and photometry doesn't always mean there's a light curve, but light curves are generally really involved with that. And I'll, I realize I didn't explain what a light curve is, but I will here in a little bit. Um, another big thing that when you're doing a lot of this scientific work, especially when it comes to photometry, is you kind of need to maintain the position and observing location that you're do, um, doing that. So you can set up in your backyard, um, but generally a fixed location, night after night, this isn't something that you would go do one uh, set of data from your backyard then one set of data from your dark sky site you really should pick a spot if you're going to commit to this and just start you know popping the data out now that usually means you're going to have to have at least a semi-permanent setup whether you have you know like a set of covers or like 365 covers that's what i have um, for my equipment i just keep it wrapped up um or an observatory is obviously ideal. Um, of course, many of us don't have the luxury for an observatory, but just because you don't have an observatory doesn't mean you can't do this, but you are probably going to need to be looking at something a little bit more uh, semi-permanent. It doesn't mean it has to be built into the backyard or anything or wherever you're at, but it needs to be to where it's not moving all the time. Now, uh, there are two major types of photometry work um, that's pretty much done, um, at least by amateur level. Uh, there are variable stars and asteroids. Um, these are the two big things that are generally done um, on an amateur level. Um, I'm sure there's a little bit more that could be done on an advanced amateur level. But these are fundamentally the two big things um, that you would be observing if you're doing uh, photometry. Now, like I said before, you're basically trying to build a light curve showing the variable in brightness. And what I mean by a light curve is this. Um, this is from my buddy Gil Esquierdo. We had him on the webcast um, a few weeks ago. Uh, he does light curves professionally, um, but this is something he's done on his own telescope, and we'll go into a little bit more detail uh, there. But this is a light curve. Um, a light curve is basically where you take a bunch of images of a particular object and then that data is measured to record the brightness of that object. And what you're looking for is these peaks and valleys. And this is basically the uh, brightness of that particular object varying uh, over time. And that means there is something causing this particular you know star whatever the object is to uh to have this uh to where it's the light is being reduced in some way shape or form and that's what we're kind of interested in because depending on the type of variable we're talking about there are different uh there's different pieces of information that we can use that on a scientific level uh so that's pretty much what you're trying to do. You're trying to take a bunch of pictures and then you make a graph like this, your bunch of data points. So it's definitely not pretty picture work anymore. You're basically just taking measurements, but what the measurement tells us can be actually pretty neat. So 
what do I need to do to do this is probably a big question that people want to know. So first off, nearly any camera can be used for photometry. Uh, but ideally, you're going to want to be using a monochrome or a black and white camera. Um, from my understanding, you could technically do something with a DSLR, but it's a heck of a lot of work. I would probably throw, uh, uh, I'm sorry, one-shot color cameras into that equation as well. You could do it, but you're, you're making it a lot harder for yourself. Um, so if you really are interested in getting into this, you really are going to want to be uh, using a monochrome camera. Now, from what I've under, from talking to people, I don't think it matters too much whether you're using a CMOS or CCD, especially because CMOS has gotten so much better over the last few years. But you want to have something where you stick with one particular setup and stick with it because that's going to build your your base where whatever the project you're involved with is, you basically want to make that as level as possible to where there's no changes um, in your setup because you, if you're going to be taking data night after night after night observing these objects or uh, doing a project, you can't be switching out your camera and switching out to different filters um, for that. You kind of want to maintain uh, that. Now, the reason why you want to use monochrome cameras is because you're, you want to isolate the frequencies of light that are coming from these objects. And generally, that's done with filters. Um, now, you can do that with like a standard imaging set, like a RGB set. They work. But the thing about RGB filters is they, they overlap a little bit. And I'll show you guys some graphs here in a minute to what I'm talking about by overlap. But... Um, there is generally a specific type of filter set that you want to use, and that's called a photometric filter set. Um, and there's there's several filters in these, uh, and they they basically allow you to observe very select frequencies of light um, without much overlap. Uh, now there are two basic sets of photometric filters that are available. There's what's called Sloan after the Sloan Sky Survey, which is done in New Mexico. And then there's the Bessel uh, filter set, which is an older set. Um, and it's generally used for stars um, and observing and doing variable star work, where Sloan is more of a deep sky survey. Now, the nice thing about these particular filters is they don't really have overlap. There's very small amount uh, there somewhere, but they don't overlap each other too much like a, uh, you know, a pretty picture red-green-blue filter set. These are ideal for making really accurate measurements um, so you can figure out exactly what frequencies that whatever the phenomenon you're trying to observe is being emitted in. Because, for example, if you have ever observed the sun and you have a white light filter, and you're seeing sunspots, but your friend next to you has a hydrogen alpha filter, and he's like, look at the solar flare. You can't see that in a white light filter because it's not the right frequency. So there are certain types of variable stars. Um, there's a lot of types of variable stars, but there's certain phenomenon that can occur in certain frequencies. So we want to be able to learn as much as we can about that. Um, so there might be things in one frequency that you can't record where in other frequencies you can so and it's important to know where those frequencies are so if someone needs to go back and observe it um, they can go back and duplicate that that's how things work in science we need to be able to duplicate the experiment now here is a standard uh, these are all from chroma um, I like using chroma filters uh, but chroma is also one of the few uh, 
filter companies on the market that actually offer uh, these photometric filter sets. There are some other companies out there that do as well, but I just happen to have, uh, I just happen to know that they, they do. So uh, here's a standard LRGB filter set. And this is probably going to be fairly standard for most of the basic, you know, LRGB filter sets on the market. You can see right here that blue kind of takes off right after 400, kind of comes up and then comes down just after 500 nanometers. Then green kind of overlaps a little bit where blue is, um, comes up and comes down. And then red doesn't overlap too much. But the unfortunate part is there's also this big gap um, right here between about 560, 75 and 600 nanometers. Um, there's a gap in between there. So we're missing all kinds of stuff in there that we could be uh, recording. So uh, take a look at that and then compare that to something like a Sloan filter set. Now a Sloan filter set uses a total of five filters um, and they're kind of, they are labeled a little bit differently. It's not just red, green, blue. They're, they're not labeled that at all. And I don't have them memorized off the top of my head, but you know, usually like U, B, V, R, I, stuff like that. Um, so it's kind of interesting. So on a Sloan set, you can see the filters here are are very uh, particular. They start at a certain wavelength and they and they shut off about right as the next filter comes in line. So there's not a lot of overlap except over here in the infrared filter, uh, but you can see they're very selective. So that way, if you're making observations, you know that, oh, this particular observation was done between, you know, um, 550 to 700 nanometers. That's very exact frequencies. And, the, and then the Bessel filter set is very similar as well, um, except at this point, there's almost no overlap between the uh, red filter, which it's not actually called red. I just don't remember off the top of my head and the IR. Um, so five filters right there. So it's very selective of the frequencies of light. So that way, when you recorded your observation, not only did you say, hey, it's brightening. This is really interesting. It's brightening or dimming. This is really interesting but it's also brightening and dimming in these frequencies. And this is how it's done professionally. So if you get real serious about doing photometry, you're probably going to end up switching to these kind of filter sets as well. You can still do pretty picture imaging with this stuff. It just gets a little weird because they're not letting, they're not really focused on a particular color. They're focused on wavelengths. So something to think about there but you can do from what i understand you can actually do work with a standard rgb set so if you want to get started messing around with stuff you can still do it if you have a, a basic set of imaging filters but if you get hardcore and this really starts to interest you and you want to be a part of like a bigger project you probably want to upgrade to these uh specialty filters now Photometry, variable stars uh variable stars are stars whose magnitude vary over time um and there are two major types. Uh, there's what's called intrinsic variables, which these have, that means it has a physical change to the star. And then there's an extrin extrinsic, uh, extrinsic, I knew I'd have a problem with that, has external change. So, and then within these, they're broken up into another two sets of short-term and long-term. Basically, how long does it take for the, 
that variable or that dimming or period is what it's called. The period of the, the dimming occurs. So short term can be as, as small as a few hours in variation. And long term can be like a year or more. So some of these objects, you could be sitting on the same object for a year recording data or other ones that you could almost do it in a night um, or a night or two if you're doing that. Now, for beginners, uh, short-term variables are going to be uh, a better thing to start with because you can basically do an actual observation within you know, a night or two. It's not a big uh, project there if you're just doing it on your own to kind of make your own curve. But obviously, if it's something you really become interested in, you wouldn't just do one or two nights. You would do it over and over and over and eventually build a much larger curve um, that you're looking for. So what are some short-term objects that we'd be talking about? First one would be pulsating stars. That's where the star is shrinking and expanding. Um, that is one that you could take a look at. Um, here's a light curve of one of those, uh, which is W Ursa Majoris. This is a light curve. This is an eclipsing binary star which means there's a another star in the system that's actually going in front of the other star, which is causing the uh, the period to happen. So that's what's causing the dim, as it dims out and gets brighter, that is an eclipsing binary. Now, eclipsing binaries are one of the easier ones to do um, and something you can do. This was taken by my buddy Gil. This is done with just a 10-inch CDK telescope. So... You know, if you have something like a, a C8 or a C9 and a quarter or, you know, something in that aperture class, you don't even need it that big, actually. If you have like a six-inch telescope, you can do some of this stuff. But he wasn't doing anything scientific um, as far as providing data for like a research project, but just the fact that he could do it um, with a basic backyard telescope is pretty neat. And that's his light curve right there. Um, and, of course, on the x-axis there, you can see how many hours... Uh, the data set was taken over um, right there. So that's it. those are like two minute exposures back to back to back from what he told me. So uh, pretty interesting uh, right there. Now another uh, set of stars is an RR Lyrae star. Um, these are really common in globular clusters. Now what's, and when you start digging into these variable stars, there's a massive list of different types of variables that have different information. So um, RR Lyra stars are, are something relatively interesting. And you'll notice here that the light curve is a little bit different. Um, it has this sharp, uh, uprising and then a gradual down then a sharp uprise and then gradual down again. Now, I, I'm sure a lot of you would like to know who freaking cares about the star. Like, what does that tell us? But RR Lyra variables can be used as, you know, mile markers, um, if you will, um, by observing their pulsation period. So the pulsation period um, tells us uh, that you can figure out the magnitude. And from the magnitude, we're actually able to figure out the distance of that star. So we can actually use them as mile markers for distant measurements um, for observing out into space. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, but they are one of the easier ones to actually go out and observe with amateur equipment. You can make these nice little graphs um, that are kind of fun to share with your friends 
Um, but you can actually expand upon that even further if you really wanted to get into it and start to do this more on a like as a variable star program. Now, if you want to get into some of this, um, there's this organization there. Don't mind their cancellation thing. Um, it's the AAVSO. Their website is aavso.org. And these are basically, um, this is the American Association of Variable Star Observers. And what's kind of neat about this is they have a ton of tutorials on this website that show you how to get started in doing this kind of observation work. Um, and you can be a part of that organization. I think there's an annual fee with it if you really want to get into it. But the nice thing about it is uh, they have a bunch of information there and a bunch of uh, information on how you can get started and the best ways to get started in doing this type of research work. Um, so it's a very interesting uh, program to get going with if this is indeed something you want to get started with. Now another thing about variables, um, it's all about something generally happening to a star, is also exoplanets, which is a massive interest uh, for professional stuff. However, this is going to be fairly advanced for amateurs because unlike a variable star, which has those, you know, very deep uh, light curves that we can really see that are kind of dramatic, um, exoplanets are very, very small changes in brightness, obviously, because the planet is generally a lot smaller than maybe its hosting star. And this also requires extremely precise tracking uh, to where the star is hopefully not even moving off of the same pixel because variation in a pixel can actually cause the light curve to be inefficient. So um, exoplanet stuff isn't something that a lot of people are doing, but if you are doing it, you've, you've probably been, you started off with doing like variable stars and you've kind of perfected the art of what you're doing to, to go into exoplanet work. Um, and that's something that you can do as well. It's a very cool subject but it's, it requires a very well-adjusted system that you really know what you're doing at that point to be able to record the very small variations in brightness. And generally with an exoplanet, it's also very quick as far as the transit is occurred in front of the star. So you're not talking about these big, you know, where the variable doesn't take that long. Um, this one's very quick. Now, long-term projects... Uh, there's a, again, there's a lot of different variable stars out there, um, but some long-term ones that are fairly easy, they're, they're called Mira variables. Uh, these are ones where, you know, it's almost a year at that point. So Mira variables are several hundred days. Uh, Mira, for existence, it's a naked eye star, um, has a 332-day period. So you'd have to observe that night after night after night or as many nights as you possibly can to track something like this and actually get that light curve you're talking over a year to build a data set like that of observations so this is where this is really something that takes a little bit of dedication to do and you're probably going to find you end up doing this more often um, than you're doing imaging because of the amount of time that it takes for you to invest into getting that observation so that's variable stars. Um, like I said, we're just scratching the surface here. Uh, if you want to know more, you can go to that website, just the AAVSO. Um, 
and learn all about this and fall down that rabbit hole. It's very cool what you're doing because you can even take some of this data and actually provide it um, to them and be a part of a bigger project. Now, I'm sure some of you are like, well, how the heck do I get a light curve? Um, there's a software called Astro Image J. Um, it's a Java software, so it works on Windows, Mac, and Linux. And the nice thing about this is uh, once you kind of take a minute to learn how to use it, um, this actually will build the light curve for you. Um, you can see right there, the light curves are visible right there on that example graph uh, screenshot right there. And um, there you go. And it builds it for you. You just pop the data set. Obviously, you got to learn the ins and outs of how to use it. But from my understanding, it's not super complicated. Um, you, you provide the target and an image set, and it will go through and kind of measure that and will build that uh, light curve for you. And the cool thing about this software is that professionals are actually using this software every day. So the data set that it's actually going to push out for you will be in the same format that professional observatories use. So if you are part of a more of a professional research grade um, variable star observing program, you can actually provide these really valuable uh, data sets to them on that particular star. Now, there are a lot of stars out there that are variables, but there's not a lot known about them. Uh, several friends of mine who do this actually have discovered their own binary systems, um, several under their names where they've actually discovered them using this because it just happens to be in the field of another object that they're observing. So there are discoveries to be made here. It might not be groundbreaking discoveries, but how cool would it be that you have now discovered uh, this star that no one knew was actually a variable star system. Um, so it's kind of neat. Uh, that you can be, you can still make these kinds of discoveries. But this is a software that would help you get that done. It's called Astro Image J. Uh, the website's right there up at the top left in the search bar, um, or just Google Astro Image J. And this um, takes some time to learn how to use it. I'm going to start messing with it as well. But this would be the uh, fundamental software that you would need to analyze the data that you're actually taking, and be able to build those light curves and start doing some you know real deal science um, with your equipment there and you don't need a big telescope to do that for some basic variable uh, work obviously more advanced stuff you're probably going to need some bigger bigger glass bigger glass never hurt anybody um, but obviously it gets expensive so that is uh, astro image j that's the software that you'd be looking at now let's talk about photometry of asteroids um, Photometric observations of asteroids can be of major importance. Why? Because we can actually learn about the orbital period, which is kind of important so we don't run into one. Um, but you can do that with a basic, um, some basic observations. Just a single light curve of an asteroid will tell you enough to where an uh, orbital period could be figured out. Um, so that's kind of an important uh, thing. Now, doing a little bit more... Um, can actually longer term programs can actually yield a lot other a lot more data. So if you're going to do multiple curves, you can actually document the shape of an asteroid over multiple observations. This is generally done when you're doing um, observations um, during the opposition of that asteroid or its closest approach. This has to be done at three different times. 
My understanding is you could technically do it with two, but that's kind of crap. Um, my understanding is you actually need three, at least three um, observations. And when you have those multiple observations and the light curves, you can actually go as far as building a model of the shape of the asteroid itself. So that's pretty crazy. Um, uh, again, I've had friends who have uh, actually discovered um, binary asteroids with this type of work from their backyard with a 10-inch telescope, which is crazy. So wouldn't it be cool? So I, I, I understand everyone always wants to take that picture and show it online and be fun and have fun with it. And maybe you get an A-pod with it. So that's really cool. But wouldn't it be cool to discover something with your own stuff from your backyard? Something that no one ever knew was there. Or maybe they knew it was there, but they didn't know this fact about it. But for you to be the one that discovers that and knowing that it's not that far from your capabilities um, is pretty cool. Like That's a feather in your cap at that point. I'm sure you've done an outreach event. It's like, have you ever discovered something? No. Well... It's a lot different when you can say yes. And I've discovered different variable star systems and stuff like that. So that's kind of kind of something pretty neat there. Uh, and that's all, mo- with, for most of us out there, this is all within grasp of the equipment that you probably already have. So it's kind of a neat uh, thing to do. Now, another thing out there is spectroscopy. Uh, spectroscopy, this is like big boy stuff uh, because... A lot of the major telescopes out on, you know, Hawaii, out in Texas, uh, Arizona, you know, Chile, a lot of them are all doing light curves and they're doing spectroscopy. So uh, spectroscopy is where you're basically breaking the light apart from an object and you're actually looking for what it's composed of and the speed and all this other cool stuff that you can find out from just uh, breaking that light apart using a, a gradient or a spectrograph. Now, for probably scientific work you probably are going to need a telescope of around 20 inches in aperture which is about half meter at that point but um that so if you're trying to do something on a research level you might need some really big glass maybe a c14 or something like that to get you started so but you can still do some really cool things with even the most basic stuff now i've known about this software um, what's going on here? Why is this jumping around? There we go. Um, now there's a really cool software that's out there. That's like a hundred bucks. Um, it's called RSpec. It's been out for a while. Um, I've played with it a little, it's really quite neat to do because you can get into spectroscopy with the smallest telescope. Um, as long as you've got a basic camera, this diffraction grating, which is basically what splits the light apart and a camera and this software. Um, cause you need something that's going to do the, the data analytics, uh, for you. So, um, I downloaded it. I played with it a little bit. If you want to mess with our spec, I think they have like a 30 day trial, which is really cool. Um, this is our spec, uh, gentleman by the name of Tom Fields wrote it and it's really, it's very, very intuitive he has amazing customer support as well. I've been talking to him. He's done, you know, tutorial videos for people to actually see how to set this up correctly. Um, but it really doesn't take much for about a $300 investment. Um, that's the diffraction grading and the software. 
you can just plug it into your existing telescope and you're pretty much ready to go. So um, I don't have my grading yet. I haven't gotten it. Um, but here's an image right here. This is just stock image that they have in there. But basically what you see here is you have the star Vega and then there is the spectrum all spread out. So what's cool here is you can grab this line. So obviously I'm highlighting an area of the image where there's nothing there. Um, but you can see our, let me get rid of the lines there. Um, we just have this random whatever. This doesn't tell us anything, but you can actually take this. We're going to drag this over there and boom, there's the spectrum of Vega right there. And this is the H beta line, the absorption line for H beta. You can actually highlight all that. There's the bomber lines or hydrogen bomber lines. This is where you're getting into pretty serious stuff. Uh, this is true spectroscopy where you're basically learning about what something is composed of. You could figure out the temperatures there. There's all kinds of crazy things you can do with this thing. Um, and uh, that's available online. I'm going to get rid of these two because we already did it. Here's their website. It's rspec-astro.com. Uh, but they have some really cool things there. Here's, uh, you can use a color camera, monochrome camera, whatever you want. Um, this is the spectrum of the Saturn Nebula, being that it's a planetary nebula. You can see they're very heavy in oxygen 3 and H-alpha. Um, there's the, if you have a color camera, you can actually see the color spectrum um, down there. Um, this one I thought was really cool. This is 3C273. This is one of the brightest quasars in the sky. Very, very distant um, object. But you can see right here, they actually figured the redshift um, of the of that. That's nuts. You do that with an 8-inch Schmidt-Cassegrain from your backyard, you can measure the redshift um, of a quasar with a little grating. Now, if you don't know what a grating is, they call it a star analyzer. It looks like a filter. And basically, it's a piece of glass in there that has the ability to fracture the light up. Um, and get you that. So what you do is you take your picture through this grating. You'd highlight the particular thing in the grating that you want to get the spectrum of, and then the software will do the analytics for you and give you that nice graph, and you can see all kinds of cool stuff with it. Um, they've even gone um, to the point where on a, like a supernova or a nova, um, where is it? It's down here. This It's really, really interesting stuff. Um, this was a supernova in 2011, um, they had someone take a picture. They did the spectrum of the the Nova. And through spectroscopy, they were able to do some mathematics. And they were able to figure out the supernova's expansion rate. Um, that's just stupid, in my opinion. Where That's awesome. Where you can actually figure out how fast something is moving from your telescope in your backyard. Um, you can do that. I did forget to mention something on photometry. Um Photometry is not really as affected by light pollution as imaging is. Um, so you could actually do photometry and you could do spectroscopy from your backyard, even if the light pollution sucks. Um, you can start doing some meaningful stuff with your telescope. That's pretty neat. So anyway, if you want to know more about this, this is our spec. Um, go over to t tell Tom we said hi. Um, email him, ask some questions. But that is a great way to get started in doing actual spectroscopy with your telescope. You can do it with a refractor. You can do it with any telescope. You just need to get one of the gratings um, 
which I think are like 200 bucks. They're like a, a little filter that threads in. Um, he's got calculators on there to help figure out if it's going to be best a good suit for your um, for your camera and such. So do some data there. But he's been very, very helpful learning this. So I'm going to jump in and try doing that. We might actually have him on as a guest speaker if you guys are interested to really dive into how we could do spectroscopy with our telescope um, he's really the master of this stuff, but very, very cool um, things right there. Um, so that is our spec. If you want to go ahead and check that out and do some spectroscopy with your telescope there. Um, now, supernova hunting. Supernova hunting is going to get a lot more difficult um, because there's a lot larger telescope survey telescopes coming into play. And this is where you're basically just having your telescope night after night hitting galaxies over and over and over and over and over again. And there is software out there. I don't know which ones it is. Um, but you're basically looking for a star that wasn't there before or was there and you couldn't resolve it. But you're looking for supernova and galaxies. Um, and there are projects out there that you can get involved with. Um, but this is kind of a cool one to do. It does take a lot of commitment because you're basically scanning these galaxies over and over and over again, looking for hopefully a blip to show up. Um, this is still doable, but it's going to become a lot more difficult because of, uh, the fact that we have these large telescopes coming online that will survey the night sky even further. Now, moving from that, that brings up a good point. Citizen science, which is our last of the sections here. Now, these telescopes, a, a good one that's coming out right now would be the uh, Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which is a 8.4 meter F, like 1.2. Yes, 8.4 meter mirror at F 1.2 um, with a massive camera sensor. Um, this telescope is going to produce 20 terabytes of raw data a night. 20 terabytes. Um, now, with that, that's too much data for astronomers to dig through and find things. They're going to do it, but that's too much for them to do on their own. Um, so, this raw data is going to be presented online. There's already places like Astronomy or uh, Galaxy Zoo um, that you can go on. There has been people who aren't even astronomers who have made discoveries, um, on there, uh, finding all kinds of different things, but you can start to rummage through these raw data sets and do uh, galaxy analytics. And maybe you can find comets or asteroids or all kinds of things with these, uh, large data sets that are going to come out and be released to the public. You'll be able to actually, and you can now, um, go through and actually do, some meaningful stuff out there because you're looking for things that maybe no one has seen before that can be documented. So that's another thing with citizen science and these professional observatories that you can start rummaging through their data sets um, and trying to find things that maybe they haven't even had a chance to see yet. So pretty cool. Um, very neat stuff. Uh, but if you like this episode, go ahead and subscribe. Uh, if you have any uh, questions or you have an idea for a future What's Up webcast, go ahead and email us at info at skywatcherusa.com. Um, I appreciate you guys hanging out uh, with us today. I would like to remind everyone that next week, next Friday, is Christmas Eve. Um, our offices will be closed, and we will not be here. We're going to go hang out with our families 
Um, but we really appreciate you guys hanging out with us this year. Um, that is not, this is not the final episode of the year though. Um, we are going to end the, the year with Nico Carver of Nebula Photos. He's a fantastic uh, YouTuber and astrophotographer. He does some really amazing work for educational purposes, um, really kind of educating people on how things work in the world of astrophotography and why they're cool. So he will be joining us on Friday, December 31st. So that will be our final episode of 2021. Um, but... We'll be excited to have him on. That will be live. That will not be a recorded episode or pre-recorded episode. It will be live. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, I hope you guys have a great and safe holiday. I don't see any questions uh, f- uh, floating around. Um, and of course, head over to our Threadless store if you need something to um, pick up. It's probably a little too late for... Um, uh, for the holidays. Uh, but if you're looking for a shirt or something cool, um, go ahead and check out our Threadless shop. We've got all kinds of cool stuff on there, but um, pretty neat, cool stuff there. Um, our marketing guys have been working very hard on that. Um, so thanks to them for that. With that being said, have a safe holiday. We'll see you guys here on New Year's Eve. um, And take care, everyone. Have a safe weekend. And uh, take care. Have a good one. See you guys. Bye.